The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Morning. Our passage this morning, which Abram will be preaching on, is Galatians 3:11 through 29. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For, a, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Abram McCorders, and I'm a pastoral resident at Christ Redeemer Church down in Hanover, but happy to be with you all uh, this morning here at Christ Restoration Church. Uh, I know Doug is away, and so per usual, he has uh, skipped out on listening to my sermon, but maybe he'll hear, hear me chiding him in the... Uh, in the recording. Um, but allow me before we uh, jump into our sermon to pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for uh, giving us this weekly rhythm of rest and of a reminder, Lord, of who you are. We thank you that you are king. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are good to us, Lord, that you use your power and you point it to us in the way of our blessing, of our of our good. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, as we continue to worship you and in prayer and in thanksgiving, Lord, we ask that this reality would not just be something that we intellectually remember, but that we would experience uh, in our hearts, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, and that we would be continually transformed into the image of your Son as we worship you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our trek through the book of Galatians this morning. If you've been here with us, we've been preaching through the book. And as we come to this section, maybe you felt it as we read it. We're, we're coming to a particularly meaty section, a, a dense section in the book of Galatians. And, and it's both dense theologically. There's a lot of theology and, and maybe finer points of theology that Paul is, is highlighting here. Uh, but he's also tying together a lot of threads throughout history and throughout Scripture. And, and sometimes when we come to portions of Scripture like this, we can either have one or two, uh, one of two feelings. For some of us, it can be extremely interesting, and for others of us, it can be extremely boring and based on our personality, right? So some of us love to dive into the finer points of theology and, and cross our theological T's and dot our eyes. We we love to parse out the specific language of who God is and what we believe about him. And then there are others of us who would rather watch grass grow, right? We 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 want the stories, we want the parables, we want we want the action, the emotion, the experience of scripture. But I would argue as we come to, to these verses, if you're feeling on either end of that spectrum this morning, you don't have to make a choice between those two things. Our theology is not detached from our experience, and our experience is not supposed to be detached from good theology. And if we're at either extreme this morning or any time we come to God's word of that spectrum, we actually risk missing what God is trying to get through to us in his word. I mean, let's take a little bit of a step back from these verses and just remember what Paul is trying to do in the book of Galatians. Paul is writing to a church who he says has turned to a different gospel. They are a church that at their core, he says, is distrusting God. They've chosen to put their trust in a place other than Christ. And I know we all like to believe that we are Paul when we read Galatians, and we want to say to the Galatian church, how dare you, right? But can we all take a minute to confess this morning? It's, this is a safe place. At least I, I feel okay to confess. That, 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 can we admit that faith is hard? That trusting in someone other than yourself is it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Do you all remember the trust fall era of life? I, I don't remember when this was. This was like middle school, high school for me. And, and do you remember when we were all doing trust falls? It was it was like the thing to do. It was like planking used to be. Remember planking? Uh, we were doing trust falls all the time, and we were doing it with our friends. We would do it as icebreakers among strangers. We would do it as like uh, team building exercises at work. And, and if you don't remember trust falls, or maybe you never had the privilege of doing one, let me just remind you what we used to do. You would turn away from one or more people. You would lock your knees, and then you would fall back and trust that this person or these people behind you are going to catch you. 
and I, I was actually just home in Tulsa, Oklahoma for my 10 year high school reunion, guys. I'm, I'm getting old, old. <laughs> and I got to walk around our high school. And I remember there was a time where we were in our high school gym and they would push the bleachers back and it would kind of make this little cliff off of the top bleachers, probably like six or seven feet tall. And I remember kids getting on top of that little cliff and falling off into people's arms during the trust fall air. We went, we went extreme with it. And children, if you hear that, there's not many here. Don't do that in front of your parents. You got to wait till they leave. This trust fall era was, was an exercise in faith. And depending on who you were in this activity, you would have had a few different experiences. If you were a bystander during some, during the trust fall, you, you might, you'd probably be cheering for the person to fall into their arms. You'd be standing, standing far off and going, do it. Just fall. They're right there. Trust them. Fall. If you're the catcher, you'd kind of be in that position. Even if you didn't trust yourself, you'd at least be trying to reassure the other person. Hey, I, I'm pretty sure I can catch you, right? Like, it's okay. You can, you can fall into my arms. But when you're the person falling, when you're the person looking away from everyone and being asked to lock your knees and fall back, that's an unnerving experience. Do you remember all the thoughts that you had racing in your head? Maybe they, this person's not close enough. They need to scoot up. Or they're not big enough. How, how could they put this small person behind me? I need someone bigger to catch me. Or the floor is going to hurt when I fall. This is going to be embarrassing. Maybe they, they miscalculate how much I weigh. I had a big breakfast. And so yesterday you could have called me, but this morning, I don't know. Or the worst thing was to, to do it with your friends, especially again in the middle and high school era, because you're thinking to yourself, I would let me fall if I was my friends. And so I'm sure that's what they're thinking. They're going to put their hands out and then at the last second, they're going to move away. It, it, it's an unnerving experience to sit there and try to do that. And sometimes you'd see someone spin these kinds of narratives so much and for so long that they would just stand there, that they would never fall. Or even if they did it once, they, you could still get back up and know that this person just caught you and start to spin that narrative and to spin that story to where you just you just stand there. And not fall again into this person. Well, that's the same experience that's happening in the Galatian church. They have heard the gospel. They've heard this invitation to fall into God, to trust him, to save and orchestrate their lives. And they've done it. They've done it before. They, were, they had responded to the gospel, but one day they, they just got tired of falling. They just got tired of trusting. One day they stood there ready to obey and they stopped short and they turned from him. And, and how they did that, how they made that turn is they used both their experience and their theology to justify that turn. And so as Paul weaves these threads throughout history and scripture, and he gets specific about what we believe as Christians, he's not doing that because he wants to geek out on the finer points of theology in front of the Galatian church. No, he's doing that because in their distrust of God and in our distrust of God, we weave the threads of scripture and history to justify our distrust. And if we have any hope of returning to God, we don't just need to be told that we're wrong. How do you get someone to do a trust fall? You don't just get the, you don't just stand there and go, just fall, just do it. No, we, we need those knots of theology that we've carefully tied in our hearts that, that, that we've used to distrust God. We need those knots to be undone. And what Paul is saying, and what God has proven throughout time, is that our distrust in him is not earned. Again, in these verses, I think what Paul is saying and what God has proved throughout time is that our distrust in him is not earned. 
where we tend to look at ourselves or look around us and reflect the world's character back onto God, Paul is saying, look again. Throughout all of history and throughout all of Scripture, God has been trying to show us that his character is unique and his character is unchanging. And because of that, we can trust him with our lives. And so as we go through these verses, I just want to talk about three things. I want to talk about covenant making, covenant breaking, and covenant keeping. As we look at these verses, we're going to talk about covenant making, covenant breaking, and covenant keeping. Let's talk about covenant making. We'll start here in verse 15. Paul in verse 15 begins to say that he's going to expound on the argument that he's made in earlier in, in earlier verses. And in those earlier verses, some of which you have printed for you, he's been trying to differentiate between the curse of relying on the law and the blessing of relying on faith in Christ. He's trying to make the the, the case that there's a difference. There's a curse. And relying on the law, and the, there's a blessing in relying on faith in Christ. And Doug preached on that last week. And his test case for the truth of that claim hangs on this character, this man named Abraham, who he says is the man of faith. And, and I think maybe you might be wondering, and it's appropriate for us to wonder, why does Paul hang his argument, this, this major argument between a blessing and a curse, on this man named Abraham? Well, I think one of the reasons is that to a large part of the people that he was writing to, Abraham was an important character. I mean, Abraham is, is considered the patriarch of the Jewish people. Throughout the Old Testament, God himself and, and the people call him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They considered him the father of the Jewish people. Even in the New Testament, when people are talking to Jesus, do you remember in John chapter 8? When Jesus is trying to call the people around him to abide in him, he starts this conversation off like this. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And their response to him is, we are the offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, in, in this moment of Jesus inviting people to come to him, to trust in him, to put their faith in him, they use Abraham as, as, a, as, a, as an example of why they shouldn't do that. They, they start to argue with him. And in their argument, they say things like, Abraham is our father. And in Jesus, he, he ends that interaction. He says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. He's trying to get the people to realize that he is greater than this, this man they're placing their faith in. He is God himself incarnate coming to them. And when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, it says that they picked up stones to stone him. That's how, that's how much people identify. That's how much people cared about Abraham. They pick up stones to stone him because of his perceived disrespect of Abraham. This is a people who are so deeply attached to the story and life of Abraham, so much that they're willing to stone Jesus when he claims to be greater. And the reason that they're so attached is because they see him as the main character of their origin story. I mean, when you first read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he's just a guy named Abram, which is a great name, by the way. <laughs> and, and he's just a guy who's just hanging out in this land that his father had stopped in on the way to Canaan. There's, there's no mention of his relationship with God. It just says that God calls to him one day promises to bless him, give him offspring that outnumber the stars, and to give him the land that he will show him. 
And, and God repeats this promise to Abraham over and over throughout his life. And he even begins to fulfill that promise to Abraham through giving him his son Isaac and allowing them to reside in the land of Canaan. But it's his descendants. It's the people of Israel who saw themselves as the real offspring that God promised. The people of Israel became numerous. They possessed the land of Canaan. They produced Jesus, the, the promised Savior of God's people. And so you can see why they would have been so attached to Abraham. His, his story, the story of Abraham, is what they based their significance off of. And that's why Paul goes, go, goes after the story of Abraham, and he's talking about things like offspring in verse 16 and in verse 18, talking about this inheritance, because he knows that there's a large part of the Galatian church that draws their significance from the implications of God's interactions with Abraham. But Paul is trying to correct them in these verses. Here in these verses, he's telling them as they hear and as they see Abraham's story, they're hearing and seeing his story through the wrong lens. And, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to park in these, in these verses and we're going to try to draw two emphases out. Doug next week is going to draw out the fact that as they look at Abraham's story, they aren't seeing who the real offspring is. It's Jesus. But for our purposes this week, Paul is also saying that as they look at Abraham's story, they're forgetting that God dealt with Abraham in covenantal terms. And that's significant. Because whatever we make of Abraham, what we have to remember is that Abraham's story is not primarily about Abraham. And it's not even primarily about his descendants. Abraham's story is meant to reveal the character of God. And how does this idea of covenant help us to see God's character? Well, well, let's remember what a covenant is. A, a covenant is a binding legal agreement between two parties. A, a binding legal agreement between two parties. So if you're a renter or have ever rented anything before, think of your lease agreement, right? You and your landlord enter into an agreement and you bind uh, that agreement legally so that if either of you breaks the contract, uh, there are legal repercussions. Or think about a loan uh, agreement. You and the, the, the loan agency enter into an agreement, but it's not just like, hey, I, I'll pay it back whenever I feel like it. No, you enter into a binding legal agreement. That's, that's what a covenant is. It's a promise with guardrails attached so that whoever keeps it will enjoy the benefits and whoever breaks it will suffer the consequences. And it's this kind of arrangement that God enters into with Abraham. I just want to let that sit maybe for a little bit because I think even I did this myself as I was studying to preach this week. If you're thinking that this kind of agreement is just a normal and appropriate thing for God to do, I think you're missing out on some of the implications of God's character, the crazy implications of God's character in this. Let's just remember the God who we're talking about. God is the creator of the universe. He, he holds all knowledge and all power in his hands because he made everything by his word. And he sustains it all by that very same word. Even time, I, I heard this great quote when I was in seminary, and I wish I could remember who I need to attribute it to. But, but they said something like this, that all eternity is present before God. So that means that this moment is present before God. The, the future that we worry about walking into is like God is there seeing it as present. The past, even that we are ashamed of or maybe run from, God is there as present because time for God, he is outside of time. He has no needs to be taken care of, certainly not materially, but not even relationally. 
I mean, our God, as we understand him in the Bible, is a triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are together giving and receiving love and glory and affection and praise. There, there is nothing that God needs. And this God saw a man named Abraham who had no desire to know him, no plan to serve him, no intent to glorify him, and he approached Abraham and bound himself legally to Abraham to bless him in such a way that he would be a blessing to all the nations. If that's not a picture of grace, I don't know what is. For God to enter into a covenant with in, with anyone is shocking because there's there's no benefit that God gets from this agreement. He doesn't need anything. But to do it for someone who wasn't even pursuing him is another level of grace. And God didn't stop there. When you actually look at the terms of the agreement that God set in his covenant with Abraham, God's part was to bless Abraham, to multiply him greatly, to give him descendants, and to give him the land of Canaan as an inheritance. And all that was required of Abraham was to walk before God faithfully and to circumcise the males in his family. And then as they go to ratify the covenant, to seal the deal, they, they take part in this ritual where, where Abraham, he, he takes some animals, he, he cuts them in two, and he places them uh, on either side. And, and it's a pretty common ritual for people who are making agreements or contracts or covenants in those days. But what usually happens is both parties walk through those animals, and they say, if either of us uh, break this covenant or break this contract, may it be done to us as we have done to these animals. Basically being, hey, if we break this deal, we're going to be split apart like these animals. And Abraham goes and he needs to set up that ceremony because he thinks that the, me and God, we're going to walk through these pieces and we're going to be two, two equally binding parties. But just as they go to do that, God puts Abraham to sleep. And as Abraham's asleep, he gets this vision of God himself by himself walking through the pieces alone. And what that says to Abraham is, is that uh, he has no fear of, of, of punishment. God puts him to sleep, essentially saying the punishment for any breaking of the covenant, whether on God's part or on Abraham's part, will fall solely on God himself. So, so just to recap, a God who has no needs legally binds himself in a contract to this man Abraham who had no prior desire for God and promises to take the penalty at the cost of his own life for the breaking of the covenant, even if he's not the one breaking it. That's this God who, who Paul is talking about and who Abraham worshipped. We don't have a category for this kind of thing outside of the gospel because we don't do this. We tell other people, if someone came up to you and said, this is the kind of deal I'm, I'm walking into, I get nothing out of it. And if either of us breaks it, I pay all the penalty. We would say, don't do that. <laughs> get out of that deal. Whatever you need to do, do not sign that piece of paper. Do not enter into that agreement. We don't do this. It's, it's negligent. It's, it's dangerous. But this is the kind of love that God displays for his people for Abraham, and for us. And Paul says, when we get to Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, once that covenant was sealed, it was sealed forever. Whatever comes after it, just like a man-made covenant, cannot annul it or add to it. See, what we learn about God's character through this man, Abraham, is that he is extravagant in his love for us. From the beginning of creation, his, his mission has been to bless 
humanity. Do you remember after he creates man and woman, what he says to them? He says, be fruitful and multiply. And even in his recreation of humanity, after sin enters the world, after we rebelled against him, he shows up to one of these rebels. And one of the first things he says to him is, I will bless you and I'll make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I think it was right for the Jewish people. And I think it's even right for us to draw our significance from the story of Abraham. But not because we can trace our ethnic lineage back to him. It's because we can trace God's love for us back to a time before we or Abraham was reaching out for it. We serve a covenant-making God. God's posture towards you is for your good. He desires to bless you. And he is so serious about blessing you that he made a covenant to do so that he knew we couldn't keep, but that we'd also never have to pay the penalty for. This is the God who stands behind the Galatian church, who stands behind us and asks us to trust him, to fall into his arms so that he can give us the significance and satisfaction and fulfillment we reach out to so many other things for, to give us our justification. And it's this God that we daily hear this invitation, that we daily read his word and somehow begin to distrust. We hear the gospel and we begin to search for another one. We read the scriptures that show us this covenant-making God and we skip over him to find significance, to find our justification somewhere else. And please don't hear me saying that in a condemning way because that's hard to confess. I do the same thing. Why? Because faith is hard. Trusting in someone other than ourselves is hard, even a covenant-making God. And, and why is that? Well, let's talk about covenant-breaking. Back back to the trust fall analogy. When when you are standing there trying to convince yourself to fall into someone else's arms, what are, what what are the two major categories of doubt and distrust that you had in that moment? I would argue that there was either a distrust in yourself, or there was a distrust in the other person. Right? We were afraid that we were going to do something wrong, which is kind of understandable when you think about it. Just in a trust fall sort of scenario. We don't ever practice falling, right? Like, when's the last time you just locked your knees and fell backwards to make sure you could still do so? I don't think I, I don't think I ever did that. Actually, some of the funnier videos to watch during that time or from that period was someone standing right behind a person and then the person falling forward for some odd reason, right? Like, people just did a lot of crazy things during the trust fall era. So we were either afraid that we were going to do something wrong or we were afraid that the other person was going to do something wrong, right? We We can't see them, so we don't know if they're close enough. We don't know if they're paying attention. We don't know if they're braced the right way. And I think those same two categories apply for our distrust of God. And you see Abraham himself, this man of faith that Paul is talking about, he struggles with those two categories. I mean, let's, let's just quickly run through his life to kind of highlight this. So Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he promises to bless him. The very next story in that same chapter is of Abraham and his wife going down to Egypt because of a famine. And in Egypt, he says that Sarah, his wife, is his sister because he's afraid that they're going to kill him because of how beautiful she is. And so God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to give you multiple descendants. And it just takes Abraham a trip to Egypt to go, hey, you might have to give me a new wife too because I gave mine away to Pharaoh. <laughs> right? Genesis chapter 13 
He gets his wife back by God's grace. Uh, Genesis chapter 13 and 14, he separates from his nephew Lot. And, and God reiterates his blessing throughout that process. But then Lot gets, gets caught in the middle of a war and he gets taken captive. And so Abraham has to go rescue him with about 300 other men. And then Genesis chapter 15, God comes to him. His first words to him are, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham essentially responds, really, God? Because I, I just got out of a war. I just, I just got out of doing something dangerous. Are you really my shield, my, my great reward? I still don't even have a son yet. But after their conversation, Abraham's faith is renewed. He, he believes God's promise to him, and he says that he was counted to him as righteousness. And as they go through this covenant ceremony that we were talking about, then we get to Genesis chapter 16. And Sarah gets tired of waiting. She says she's too old to have a son. And so together they hatch this plan to move God's plan along. So they take Hagar, her, her servant. Abraham sleeps with her and they have Ishmael, the supposed child of promise. But jealousy ruins that arrangement. Sarah kicks Hagar out and her son. Uh, but they, they come back. And in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham is convinced that he made God's plan happen. But God tells him that's not the case. Sarah is going to have a child named Isaac. And Abraham believes God again. So much so that he obeys God. And he has all the men in his household circumcised before he, he even has Isaac. But in chapter 18, Sarah's back to laughing at the thought of God actually fulfilling his promise. And Abraham isn't confronting her because he's probably just as unsure himself. That's the story of Abraham. The man of faith. He is just like us, and we are just like the Galatian church, riding the highs and the lows, the constant waves of trust and distrust. Distrust comes so easily and so quickly to Abraham, to the Galatian church, and to us too. And, and it comes so quickly and it comes so easily because, because of those two categories. Either we are afraid we won't hold up, or we're afraid God won't hold up. Either we'll break our end of the covenant to walk faithfully with him, or he won't fulfill his end of the covenant to bless us and to do what he promised. And it's so easy for our hearts and minds to drift and linger on those thoughts, not because of God or anything that God is doing, but because we live in a covenant-breaking world. I mean, think about all the, I mean, I just sitting here, just trying to narrow it down for, for examples in my sermon, just, it just kind of hit me. Yeah, we break covenants and contracts with each other all the time. I mean, as renters, we seldom follow our lease agreements, right? And, and we know that because half the time we spend moving out is either fixing or hiding all the ways that we broke our lease while we were there. Or we default on things like our loans all the time. Right? That's why we created the system of bankruptcy to reduce the effects of the damage that that does. Our divorce rates in our country are 50%. 60 to 70% for our second marriages. And no one stands at the altar and goes, in eight years, I'm going to default on this promise. But we live in a covenant-breaking world. And it happens. Even when we turn on the, the, the TV, we watch the news with skepticism because of the ways that fake news has been exposed. Even simple, small things to, in ourselves, like, like being on time, of which I am the worst. 
Listen, if you give me a time, give me a time five to 10 minutes earlier and I'll be there on the actual time that you want, right? And, and I've known this about myself and I've tried hard to work on it and I'm getting better at it, but still, I, I, I still struggle with being on time. Or, or think about the promises that we make to ourselves, right? M- maybe like stopping a behavior. Have you ever tried to confront a sin pattern and go, I am never gonna do that again, I promise. And then a week later, a month later, you find yourself doing the same thing. Or we're coming up on the New Year's and maybe you're trying to start doing something. You make all these New Year's resolutions and we go, hey, I'm going to work out this year. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to read my Bible. And by February, we can't remember the, the New Year's resolutions that we made. Right? We live in a covenant-breaking world. We live in a world where we more often break covenants than keep them. That's because we live in a world that's scarred by sin. I mean, the essence of sin. The nature of sin is rebellion. And it's first rebellion against God. It, it's in our hearts. We're saying, I'm not going to keep the terms of the agreements that God has set. I'm going to make the own, my, set my own terms of agreements. But that also works itself out as rebellion against one another. And that rebellion fuels our distrust. And that distrust fuels our rebellion. And that rebellion fuels our distrust. And that distrust fuels our rebellion. I mean, and it's it's why we're such a scandalized and distrustful people now, right? Again, as we turn on the news, as we listen to people like politicians, as we come up on an election year, how how many how many times do we sit there and go, "I believe everything that they're saying"? Never. Why? Because I, we've seen their rebellion, and that fuels our distrust. And that distrust fuels our rebellion. Our, our, it's the same cycle. Or, or it's why we can even be manipulative and call it self-protective. Because in this world of covenant breaking, we better get them before they get us. We say in our hearts, either you're not going to hold up or I'm not going to hold up. And so I better get all the benefit I can before this contract, this covenant crumbles. We, we live in this covenant breaking world. And just like it feeds our distrust of one another, it feeds our distrust of God himself. And that distrust, it it runs deep. It it runs so deep that we can even use God's own law to protect ourselves against him. Now, now there are some people in this world who just own their rebellion and they own their distrust of God. They, they, They kind of wear it on their sleeves and in their behavior. But there are other people like me. And there are other people like the Galatian church that in our, our distrust and our rebellion looks different. And we, and I'm just talking about me and the Galatian church, I don't know if this is your struggle too, but, but we use the law to bind God because we don't trust that his love for us is binding enough. I mean, what is the law? The law are God's standards. It's what it looks like to walk before him faithfully. It's, it's his character displayed in our lives. And one of the things that the law does is it gives us self-awareness. James says in, in his, his book, he says it's like looking in a mirror. And, and the law highlights the many ways that we are covenant breakers. I mean, read through the Old Testament and look at the commands that God gives us and see how many we live up to. But the law's ultimate aim was to make was not just to make us aware of ourselves, it was to make us aware of the character of God in the ways that he was and is faithful to his promises. Look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, so he talks about this covenant not being annulled by anything that comes after it. And so we get to the law, and he says, so why then the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions. 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So again, Paul Paul's essentially saying the same thing. The, the law does expose us. It was put in place because we needed it. We are transgressors. It was added because of transgressions. But why do we need to see our transgressions? It's not just so that we see how bad we are and to sit under the condemnation of that. No, I think the law was given to us so that we were not tempted to put our trust in any other fellow covenant breakers walking around and to keep our faith in a faithful God. The law, Paul says, as he continues on, is a guardian for us. It protects us against trusting in ourselves or other people for our salvation. As we hold the law up to ourselves, as we hold the law up to our communities, it tells us that we are rebels. We're, we're not solid ground to, to, to place our own faith in. Only, the only person who lives up to, to God's standards is God himself, and that's where we're to keep our trust. The law was to guard us, but we can often use the law to guard ourselves against God. And, and, and I see myself doing this all the time. For me, when, when life is bad, I start combing through all the things that I think I've done or start reciting to myself why I don't deserve good things. I start to say things like, okay, I'm feeling suffering or I'm feeling anxiety. I'm feeling depression. I'm feeling the, the bleakness of life. I must have broken God's law again. There must have been some way I, I didn't measure up to his standards and he's, he's punishing me for that. Or I'm, I'm being punished for that. Or when life is good, I start to reason through all the things that I've done right as, an, as, an, as a reason for why things are going well in my life. Or to try to make quick atonement for the things I've done wrong so I can keep this good experience of life. But both of those things are self-protective moves. What I'm admitting to myself in my heart is that I'm convinced I'm the reason for where I'm at in life. That I've got what, I, what it takes to sustain myself and to make myself better if I just use God's law against him. In a sense, if I keep God's law, he can't punish me. And if I repent and I, and I, and I keep God's law, he has to remove his hand if, if things are bad in my life. Instead of hearing God's call to just fall into him, to trust him because he is faithful, I try to make myself faithful. And when I'm not, I condemn myself where he doesn't. See, even though God calls for me to fall into him, to trust him, to place my faith in him, I say that he can't be trusted. He's got to be just like everyone else. But that's just a projection of my character, the character of human nature, onto God. God is not like us. God loved us so much so that even in our rebellion against him, he made a covenant to bless us that he knew we couldn't keep, but that we'd also never have to pay the penalty for. And even though we know that, and even though we hear that, and even us as Christians who know, who've heard that story over and over and over again, there comes a point, there comes a day where we say to ourselves, there's got to be a catch somewhere. We'd still rather trust people who are finite covenant breakers than a faithful covenant-making God. And so where, if this is our experience, if this is the experience of the Galatian church, where do we find the faith to actually trust God? Leads me to my last point, the covenant keeper. You see, our, our sin has a way of magnifying us and, and shrinking God down. That's, that's what rebellion is, is, is thinking that there's some way that I can supersede my authority. 
and the, and the law can sometimes add to that feeling, even though it, it's, it's not meant to, to be that way. But Paul says we are not called to look at ourselves and we're not called to look to the law. We are called to look to Christ. Look, look at verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And here he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is calling the Galatians church, and Paul is calling us not to look at the law, not to look at ourselves, but to look to Christ, to look at Christ. That's the way we fight our distrust of God. And again, this let me just continue to reiterate and highlight that this distrust of God, it was such a common experience. It was a common experience when Jesus was here, when he was walking and talking. It says that even his own brothers, even his own mother at some point had had trouble reconciling that this is the savior of the world, that this is the God who has come to redeem us. It, you can imagine as, as people are hearing the stories, they're just, they're hearing that it's just this man, this Nazarene, this kid born in Bethlehem who's, who's walking around who's supposed to be the savior of the world. And how did people come to place their faith in him? It wasn't because they reasoned intellectually. It wasn't because they told themselves to stop distrusting and just fall into Jesus. How anyone's faith was, was, was bolstered and placed in Christ was because they, they met him. They saw him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They literally put their eyes on Christ. And what they saw was a man who could heal, was a man who could raise the dead, was a man who forgave sinners, was a man who taught with authority, was a man who walked on water, who multiplied bread, was a man who loved unconditionally. They saw the character of God on display, and as he kept displaying God's character, then they placed their, their faith in him. Paul, Paul says that our faith has come. That, that faith is not just something that we, 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 we think through and reason through. Faith is not just something even that we play somewhere. We talk a lot about faith. Uh, faith is not about the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith, right? But but I think what Paul is saying here is even deeper than that, that faith is deeply personal, that faith is the person of Jesus Christ. He said, now that faith has come, we can place our eyes on Jesus. And that, that, that same trouble that people had in Jesus' day of distrusting himself until they, they, they saw Jesus, Paul says, the Galatians are having that trouble. And they were having that trouble until they received the Holy Spirit, who is God's Spirit on the inside of us, who, who is God's Spirit dwelling with us. And it's as we look to Christ that he becomes bigger than our sin. He becomes bigger than our distrust. He becomes bigger than our suffering. He becomes bigger than our disagreements and our differences. He is our faith. And so as we think through those two categories, our distrust of ourselves or distrust of other people, as we feel the fear that we won't hold up under the terms of God's covenant, we look to Christ. And as we look to Christ, we see that he is the fulfillment of God's promise to pay the penalty even when we go astray. Why did Christ go on go to die on the cross for our sins? Because it's the fulfillment of God's promise to us. Back all the way back, centuries ago, when God walked himself 
through those pieces of animals. We see the fulfillment of that as Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says, I know they're covenant breakers. And I know you live in a world of covenant breaking. And I know that your trust isn't made perfect the day you place your faith in me. But guess what? You will never have to pay the penalty for your distrust or your breaking of my commands because I've already done that. You can trust me. You can fall into me. Or, or are we afraid that not maybe not we won't hold up, but maybe God won't hold up, that he'll delay or default on his promises? Again, we just need to look to Jesus because he is the one through who all the promises of God flow. God, we, we have eternal life in Christ. We have significance in Christ. We have worth and favor and inheritance in Christ. We have justification in Christ. Because not only did he go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, but he was resurrected from the dead. And as we live in him, all the things that are Christ are ours. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. All we have to do is respond to God's invitation to fall into him, to be received by him. And I think what this does is we continue to do that. As we continue to place our faith in him daily, to trust him, what it does is it, it, it takes those things that usually produce a distrust in God and it turns them into ways that he's actually building faith into us. I mean, let's just think again of the, the, the context that the, the Galatian church is in. They've got this Jewish uh, community. They've got this Gentile community. They're nothing alike. The only thing they share in common is geography, is that they live around each other. They're different culturally, ethnically, by language, things of that nature. And it's causing them to distrust, hey, either God, you're saving people like me or you're saving people like them. It can't be, it can't be the two, right? But as they think and as they, as, they, as they meditate on this covenant making God who made a covenant before it was a Jew or Gentile distinction, those things that usually would produce distrust, now a reminder, no, this is a fulfillment of God's promise. And this is as we see people who are who are saved and brought to Christ who are completely different from us, from all nations. It doesn't produce distrust. It doesn't build in us frustration. It, it, it's a reminder and it builds into us a faith because it's a reminder of his promises. Even 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 like in, in our sin, the the when he confronts us in our sin, sometimes we, we think we're tempted to think that this is God's punishment, that he's driving us away from it. The, the exposure is, is, is not his pursuit, it's his punishment. But he reminds us in Christ that that can never be the case. If you belong to Jesus Christ and God starts to expose your sin, that's not a reason to distrust. It's a, it's a reason to trust because it means that God is disciplining you for your good. The penalty is already paid in Christ. And therefore, as he exposes our sin, he's doing it for our good, but not for our harm. All the things that we run to and, 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 and hold on to for the distrust of God as we place our faith in Christ, remember that he is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Those things serve to bolster our faith and not to pull us away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promises that you make in your word. I'll confess, Lord, that your promises feel too big and too grand for a person like me. Uh, they feel too pure for a covenant breaker like me. But I thank you, Lord, uh, that in Jesus Christ, you give us the assurance of that love, the assurance of that blessing, the assurance of that covenant keeping. Because you remind us that it's not based on our merit, that it's not based on our behavior. Uh, it's just based 
on our trust, our faith in you to fall into you, that we receive these promises and these blessings. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, that you would expose even the areas of our distrust in you so that we might look to, look to Jesus in those areas. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself by your Holy Spirit, that you would place your spirit amongst us and that we would really walk with you, Lord. That we would do the hard work of trusting you uh, so that we might not be deceived that we or anyone else uh, could, could be our salvation. And we ask, Lord, that as we trust you, that you would continue to transform this community and, and bring others, bring other covenant breakers into this community. Uh, because we know that if we need it, so, so too does our community and so too does our world. And we thank you, Lord, that this is a free and, and, a, and a far-reaching invitation that you will not cast off any who come to you. So we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.